0: Hello folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the VISA blog and author of the recently released Special Relationship, Trump. Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visview.blogspot.com. That's v i s u p v i e w.blogspot.com, and procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word dot store. <clears throat> also, please consider signing up for the farm's Patron. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. All right. Today's guest is making his second appearance on the farm. He is a Kentucky-based independent writer, researcher, and activist. He is the author of Uncertain Futures, an assessment of the conditions of the present and the forthcoming acceleration, Utopian Currents from Data to the CCRU. Folks, I give you guys the great Evan Berger. Ed, thank you so much for coming back for round two, sir.
1: Hey, Stephen. I'm glad to be back. I had a lot of fun last time, and I'm excited that we get to get into some uh, real
0: weird stuff here this evening. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is definitely going to get weird. It's going to get real weird. <laughs> All right. So last time Ed was on here, we talked about the strange, murky history of postmodernism. That was a great show and one you guys should probably check out to provide some background for today's show so there is a connection there but this outing is also an installment in the farm's ongoing any mystery babylon series the title is, of course derived from the legendary mystery babylon series launched by conspiracy titan and former naval intelligence officer william milton cooper during the early 90s the series purported to tell the hidden role secret societies and cults have played in world history a fascinating and relevant topic to be sure but one of which Mr. Cooper did not always bring the best scholarship to. And this is despite having an entire episode dedicated to his bibliography. So this is my attempt to set the record straight. Today's subject is not a secret society and many of those linked to it would probably reject it being classified as a cult. But as as we shall see, it did certainly take on the trappings of a cult after a time. Our subject is the Enigmatic Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit, or CCRU, of Warwick University. If you've been listening to The Farm for a while or reading my blog over the last few years, then you know that the CCRU is a topic that I find to be utterly fascinating. This collective has had a profound, if little understood, influence on the culture of the 21st century among both the far left and the far right, Ed is one of the foremost authorities working on this subject today, so I'm very blessed to have him with me to help unpack this subject. All right, Ed, before we get into the CCRU proper, why don't you explain the concept of accelerationism to us? It's a term we're going to be hearing time and again throughout this interview, so best to get it out of the way now.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting concept, accelerationism, because it's actually, it's pretty difficult to properly kind of unpack really. It's a, it's a slippery subject and it's only been made more difficult in recent years. Cause you know, there's this whole tendency, you see, uh, uh, to describe more like contemporary forms of terrorism as accelerationist, you know, the Boogaloo boys and groups like that are identified as accelerationist groups. And what kind of binds all those groups together is this whole idea of making things worse, Uh, to hasten collapse. And even though there might be like some superficial similarities there, this kind of theme of chaos, uh, that is quite different from the accelerationism that we're considering kind of here. It comes from a completely different intellectual lineage. And in a lot of ways, they're exactly the kind of politics that this form of accelerationism is critiquing. Uh, A friend of mine, Vince Garton, he once said that there was like probably countless individuals, uh, forms of thought, movements, et cetera, that could kind of like be labeled accelerationist. And I, I think that this is where the, the last show is really relevant to the, this topic, because in that, you know, it was about postmodernism. But we also talked about modernity and, and modernity is kind of having a sense of time that sense of time was being on the cusp of the future, uh, like a future so close that it connects. And I think that if we're talking about accelerationism like as broadly as possible, it's precisely that. Uh, I I think if we could take maybe like two different ways of looking at it, Uh, there's kind of the broad open-ended ways in which you could possibly say that accelerationism is an internal doctrine of modernist impulses themselves. And that's one of the reasons it's so different from the terrorist uh, accelerationism, because that's very anti-modern. But when we're talking about the CCRU and the kind of stuff that came after it, uh, there's also like a more direct intellectual lineage that we could frame as accelerationism and this also kind of goes back to what we talked about before because the person who would have been kind of the opening shot of it would have been Nietzsche who had this whole idea of what he called the leveling process and this was kind of like the spread of nihilism uh industrial society uh the challenging of all you know previous beliefs uh, and he said, you know, even though he was a critic of nihilism, he said we should accelerate this process, uh, very explicitly said that. And, you know, this would uh, kind of make the conditions where what he called the ubermensch or the overman would arise from. And this was in a little fragment he wrote. that was kind of really forgotten. But in the 60s, it was recovered by uh, Group of French philosophers. The first guy to find it was a guy named Klossowski, who was translating Nietzsche's late fragments, and his translation project was overseen by Galet De Luz, who then eventually teamed up with another guy named Felix Guattari, and they wrote a book called Anti-Oedipus. And it's an anti-Oedipus where they really use this notion of accelerate the process. But what they kind what they do is they kind of graft it onto Marx, really, because Marx had this whole notion that capitalism was, you know, it was developing the productive forces. It, it was kind of creating the possibilities for this world beyond it. And sometimes it, it's not constant, but there's parts in Marx where you could almost read them not pro-capitalist, but he's very enthusiastic about the, the technological dimensions. And he talked about how, you know, like we shouldn't try to be conservative with free trade, like we shouldn't retreat into protectionism. So it's this form of Marx that Deleuze and guattari kind of graft this Nietzsche concept onto, but they're not really interested in uh, the technological dimension, per se. They're more interested in what they call like capitalism's ability to kind of create schizophrenic energy. It's kind of this creative dynamics that kind of melts down the, uh, the old world. And so they say like, you know, should we retreat backwards, you know, or should we go deeper into the world market? Uh, should we accelerate the process? And they, they're directly quoting Nietzsche here. And this is kind of where accelerationism itself starts to crystallize. Um, And it's interesting because it's really it's Land who Nick Land who later formalizes it. And he, he made a really interesting point. You know, we we talk about Nietzsche and his leveling process. You know, the leveling process is be accelerated, and it creates the conditions for the for the overman. Well, in Marx, you know, it's kind of this accelerating capitalism's technological dimension, and it you know creates the conditions for communism. Or in Deleuze and Guattari, it's kind of accelerating the world market to create the schizophrenia. And Nick also points out that. In you know like uh, tech circles, you kind of accelerate technology, and it creates the conditions for the singularity. And so you have you know this whole process, and one version term you know comes to communism, and another comes to the overman, and another comes to like kind of cosmic schizophrenia. Another comes to the singularity, and so it's not that these are all identical, but they kind of hold the same conceptual architecture. And so in that sense, you know, you can kind of see where accelerationism cuts through all of those, but can also highlight how, you know, it is kind of like an internal doctrine to modernism, to like modernity, uh, because this is kind of the fundamental architecture of basically most modernist, you know, uh, philosophies, political ideologies, art movements, and etc. So I think that that's probably as close as we could really get to saying like, what is accelerationism?
0: Well, that was certainly a fine effort to define it, sir. I yeah, it's, um, I,
1: I've been thinking <clears throat> about this for like four years at this point, trying to figure out exactly the best way to frame it. And I, I think that for, for me, at least this is, I, I think the best way to go about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a term that, as you you know, alluded to, it means many different things to many different people in the 21st century. So, um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's difficult. Let's put it there. Yeah.
1: Contentious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. 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 All right, so let's get into the origins of the CCRU. First off, let's go over two of the figures most responsible for it. They are uh, the after-mentioned gentleman Nick Land and Sadie Plant. So let's start with Plant because you don't hear very much about her in comparison to Land. So what was her background and what was she about?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that we're focusing on her first and foremost because one, there's like more of a history there actually. And also because in kind of like, like Nick Land's become almost like a mythological figure, you know, in, a lot of, in, in today and plants role in all this really has kind of been like pushed to the side. But that's really not fair because in the beginning, you know, she was far more important than Land and kind of putting all this in motion. And she provides a lot of uh, linkages to a lot of predecessors. But so Sadie Plant was an academic. She specialized. Well, she's still alive, but she's no longer an academic. Uh, she specialized in culture studies, and at the same time that she was, you know, doing her academic work, she was also involved in a lot of different kind of subcultural groups that were operating in the UK at the time. Um, and there's stuff like neoism and this thing that was called the art strike where everybody would quit making art for a few years. But what kind of bound her academic work and this like subcultural activities together was the legacy of what was called like situationism. And if, we, if, if you've read, you'd like, we talked last time about the grill Marcus book uh, that was all about situationism and the the situationists, just this like a little yeah, you know, blurb good. on the,
0: that's lipstick oh, well, traces, by the way, folks. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, lipstick train. I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. Um, but there was, it was kind of a group. Well, kind of, Actually, it was multiple groups that kind of whittled down. And they, they straddled the worlds of uh, experimental art, militant politics. Started in the late 50s, really kind of picked up steam across the 1960s. And what's important here with the situationists is this idea that they – had uh, kind of developed in the mid 60s. And it was the idea of what they called the spectacle. And the spectacle is where all social relations, they said, came to be mediated by images. And it's kind of like a hard concept, but you know, Marx had talked about how in capitalist society, all social relations are mediated as economic relations. Well, this is like one step beyond that, where like images. Um, you know, the most superficial form would be like advertising or, you know, uh, icons of luxury and stuff like that. Does that
0: that kind of play into, um, some of the concepts of Marshall McLuhan? Um, McLuhan,
1: uh, yeah, there, there was an influence of Marshall McLuhan on the Situationists, uh, they never liked to, you know, give shout outs to other thinkers. They always had to kind of be antagonistic to them. So they didn't have very many nice things to say about Marshall McLuhan. But yeah, it's definitely kind of operating in the same kind of realm, this whole kind of like, uh, you know, 1950s, 1960s, like technological advancement, um, uh, consumer society discourse.
0: Because as a social critic, I mean, I think he was really one of the first major figures to kind of uh, recognize the the rise of imagery and uh, visuals is being so uh crucial to how the human mind was now processing information whereas previously the written word had really dominated yeah. our concept of reality i mean now it was being surpassed by visual images
1: yeah that's a really great point and, and there is a lot of real similarities there uh I, I think the main difference would really be the kind of like context that they're they're developing in like Situationism, you can kind of like trace them back through surrealism and Dada, whereas like Marshall McLuhan is coming from more of a academic and quite technical background. Uh, but there are oh, like, you like
0: you're Catholic, saying, like um, conception too, which I always found.
1: Yeah, yeah, surprisingly so. Um, I, I'm not a, like a too well read on McLuhan, but I found like some of the stuff that I have read to be like super interesting. But oh, yeah, I guess to kind of like wrap that back around, um, Sadie Plant's first book was concerned with reading the theory of the spectacle inside the context of postmodernism. And so she was interested in how a lot of different like groups or philosophers and thinkers tried to respond to the spectacle or, you know, within postmodernism, but were always they always failed to do so um the, the situationist had this idea of recuperation which is kind of like co-option or capture and so she you know kind of points out that like the postmodern condition uh kind of destroyed any kind of vantage point of critique um and so around the later 80s and early 90s a lot of the subcultures that she was involved with began using, you know, new digital technologies. And this was very interlaced with the emergence of rave culture, you know, and the, the music underground in, in the UK. And science at the time was kind of promoting all these ideas of self-organizing systems. Well, Plant saw all these as kind of uh, indicators of some kind of common process. And she came to think that... Uh, you know this this strange new cultural formation, these new sciences and new technologies were kind of met, they they were exploding the spectacle from within that the postmodern condition itself was melting down, and so that was kind of her in into this kind of a uh, uh, world.
0: Yes, yeah, no, resonating there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> All right. So, how about Mr. Nick Land? Uh, what was his background going into the
1: yeah. C.R.U.? Yeah. So, so Nick Land's—he's a little more biographically straightforward. Uh, there's actually really not too much information about his early years. It's rather mysterious. Uh, he does have an article or an essay called "A Dirty Joke" that divulges a few like early biographical uh, details. Talks about like hallucinating music and stuff it's quite strange but worth reading um he did he studied philosophy uh under a specialist in the philosopher heidegger and heidegger was interested in you know things like time and the impact of technology on society so you can kind of see we'll we'll see how that was like very much like an influence on land but his philosophy was very distant kind of from heidegger Uh, He seemed to have had like a a preoccupation, even at like a very early stage, with uh, kind of extreme positions. Uh, There's like this Akrasypha story about him giving a a talk on the Black Death, you know, the the plague that ravaged Europe. But he told the story, or did the analysis from the point of view of the rats, that carried the plague. And as this little legend goes, like he was asked, why did you choose to focus on the rats? And he's like, well, it's simply not interesting. You know, like, why would you want to focus on the human perspective in this? And this kind of sounds kind of like edgy and look, ooh, dark. And it it is to like an extent, but in philosophy, you all, like the, the philosophy always starts from the human. You know, like we have cognitive process, that's your beginning point to approach the world. But like what Land always wanted to do was kind of invert this or get outside of this frame. Uh, I wanted to think, you know, from a radically exterior position, an inhuman position. Um, And this is really like, you can really get a glimpse of this in the, the first book he wrote, which was called Thirst for Annihilation. And this book was about a French philosopher named uh, George Bataille. And Bataille is a, he's a really interesting guy. He was one of the first people to treat Nietzsche seriously. And Bataille's whole bag was that he, he was very interested in extreme states and limit experiences and, you know, sex and death and all these very French things. And, you know, how do they all like link together? And
0: uh, Bataille's
1: whole, he. he Said that they were all like indications of excess, and excess is kind of like this great unknown that kind of blows everything apart. Um, but I had been part of like the secret society, and the there's this whole legend about like you know, they were very interested in human sacrifice. And the story goes that, like at the first meeting of the secret society, they decided that they were gonna do like a human sacrifice, right? And this was supposed to like kick off kind of like this mystical uh, revolution. This was during World War II. But like every person in the secret society uh, volunteered to be the sacrifice and then they can never figure out who would do it. So nobody got sacrificed. I don't think this is a true story, but it's, you know, it's a fun one nonetheless. But uh, the way that this is important is that Land's book on Bataille isn't really secondary literature on Bataille. He writes kind of using Batai as a mask to kind of get into this inhuman kind of position. Uh, the, you read through it and it's kind of a maddening book. There's really no other philosophy book quite like it. It's just kind of this prolonged experiment and self-derangement. You know, It's like unmaking of the self. It's very extreme. Uh, doesn't really have the emphasis on technology that his later stuff would have. But you can kind of see even when he turn, starts thinking about like technology and you know, social trends, he still maintains that kind of commitment to a, a radically inhuman position.
0: Now, Ed, something that like occurred to me uh, just now, I mean, it seems like a lot of, um, you know, the thinkers that we've been uh, going over, especially in the 20th century, um, were largely from France. Um, which seems to have really been kind of the heart of postmodernism for a good chunk of the 20th century. Like was the, was the CCRU really like one of the first times this sort of school of thought got a lot of attention within the Anglosphere? In certain ways.
1: Yeah. Um, University of Warwick where CCRU was located was, I'm pretty sure one of the first non-French like hotspots of like, where Deleuze and Guattari were studied. Um, they're kind of like hip in the academy now, but it wasn't, that wasn't really true, um, you know, back then. Uh, when the CCRU was in existence, there was, you know, um, kind of like people like Jacques Derrida, who was, who was French, uh, but he was kind of like the reigning philosophical orthodoxy. And so by turning to people like Deleuze and Guattari or like Jean Baudrillard, uh, who I guess we'll have to mention at some point as well. He, uh, th- these were kind of like heresies, you know, to, to be working within these traditions and not like the Derrida tradition. And so, it, it, yeah, they, they did really kind of help popularize it, um, which is kind of surprising because they're also kind of like shunned, but it was like a very kind of rebellious thing to do to be studying these thinkers in that time.
0: Yeah, no, I was definitely uh, kind of struck by the connection that so much of the early postmodernism had in France. Um, Yeah, it's very interesting. um, I suppose, too, the Matrix film was probably like a later transmission point by the late 90s, too. I mean, of course, that was kind of when the, you know, the whole simulation concept first started to get kind of rolled out to a popular audience. Um, Right.
1: Yeah, because that that was uh, based on, you know, like uh, the writings of Baudrillard and he was really well, and he was like a public figure in France, but I'm not really sure. Uh, you know, he, he was kind of like influential in like art scenes in the U S in the eighties, but I don't think he really got that widespread recognition until later in the nineties. Yeah. with The matrix and stuff.
0: All right. Well, just to give all you guys out there a little bit of a cultural context, all this. All right, so um, let's unpack a little bit of CCRU terminology before we go any further. So let's start with theory fiction. What is that?
1: All right, this is actually perfect because this idea is borrowed directly from Baudrillard and involves the simulation theory. So it's a perfect little uh, setup. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pretty much like, you know, I was digging in, kind of trying to figure out, how they took theory fiction. And it seems to be very much just pretty much a direct lift from uh, from Baudrillard's. So in Baudrillard's theory, uh, well, I guess importantly, Baudrillard himself, he identified as a situationist, right? And the whole simulation theory is an attempt to update the spectacle, you know, which we just kind of talked about. So it's actually kind of an easy intellectual lineage when you start tracing it here. Um, And so what's important about like the spectacle, just to kind of like dial it back to that, it assumes that there is something real that's kind of hidden beneath it. Right. Uh, the, The spectacle is social relations mediated by images, but, you, through critique, you know, the method of critique. Uh, this is like uh, in critical theory, this kind of process of demystification, kind of unveiling. Um, you know, the, the critique is to pierce the spectacle, to demystify it, to kind of get to the real that is obscured beneath it. Well, Baudrillard's simulation theory is that there is no more real beneath the spectacle. Uh, everything's unmoored and ungrounded. And you kind of see how that's related to like how we talked about postmodernism. And it's pretty hard to kind of think through. But you can think of the simulation as the point where the spectacle seeps down and kind of subsumes the real into itself. And Baudrillard kind of talks about what he calls the hyper real in relation to this, you know, the real that is no longer real. And, you know, if the task of critical theory is to unmask structures of domination and to pull back like the curtains of mystification to get at what's really there. But if what's really there, you know, if there, there is no real anymore, the, the real is just an extension of the spectacle itself or the simulation. Well, then what's left of theory? Because what is theory left to get at? And so by necessity, of being within this paradigm, theory itself must be fiction, and so he kind of considers his own writings to be theoretical fictions. It's 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 critical theory as science fiction,
0: and he also uses that's it to kind a, of like that's a very interesting concept.
1: Yeah, it, it's uh once you kind of like crack it, it it's really and
0: specifically would f- uh, focus on science fiction as the genre, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, and his I'm whole just... thing with like science fiction is that it science fiction kind of like his one of his favorite examples was uh you know the british sci-fi writer jg ballard
0: oh yeah who wrote crash
1: yeah exactly um uh baudrillard thought that jg ballard's like style of fiction science fiction captured the world just as well or better than a lot of like formal philosophy or theory could do like if you want to understand the world don't go you know to to philosophy go to jg ballard and that's another kind of aspect of theory fiction and so the CCRU is using it they're just quite literally taking that theory like in saying like you're kind of adding to the palette and so like for them movies like uh Blade Runner or The Terminator or Videodrome or In the Mouth of Madness or, you know, books by William Gibson could all be treated as philosophical yeah, texts. Say,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I mean, that's specifically the use of science fiction and fantasy already had such a Strong association with occultism and a means of spreading like a magical worldview effectively. And I mean, really, that's something that you can go back and see um, in some of the writings of Bruno in the 16th century and then kind of going yeah. back to the 17th. You know, you can look at the Rosicrucian manifestos, which I think, you know, in a sense are kind of an early form of theory fiction. I mean, basically, it was a, a fictional tract that tried to distill a lot of this elaborate Hermetic uh, ideology of the Renaissance, you know, into a, a tract essentially. Um, That's it. Yeah, and I, I know that like, um, a lot of science fiction
1: kind of like started around the, the era of the French Revolution. Mm. So it would be kind of interesting to like kind of compare, you know, these Revolution. points of like,
0: oh, go ahead. Well, yeah. Then, I mean, obviously, you know, you kind of look into the modern world. I mean, especially the close relationship that sci-fi and fantasy has to all of this. I mean, Elron Ron Hubbard, of course, famously started out as a science fiction writer before, um, you know, founding Scientology. I mean, you have like Mary yeah. Bradley, the author of The Miss of Avalon, who tried to set up her own religion with her husband, Walter Breen. Um, Whitley Jack- Streber was a sci-fi writer yeah, before Mark he had his... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Parsons was a huge science fiction fan. I think he and um, another one of the scientists actually wrote like an unpublished sci-fi novel together or something to promote rocket science but i'm not 100 sure of that oh
1: interesting yeah
0: but yeah i mean it's you know even crowley you could even point to some of his fictional works as sort of being steep maybe in the tradition of fantasy so i mean it's uh, i could
1: definitely see that at least on an aesthetic level for sure
0: yeah so i mean it is interesting that that you know it's it's very interesting that he would uh focus on that. Specific style sci-fi and fantasy because I mean already they were sort of used for you know many years to sort of uh, promote this magical worldview so I think in a sense that does sort of uh uh align itself rather well with this kind of hyper reality that he's getting at
1: yeah and, and even though like Baudrillard doesn't really mention it like Deleuze and Guattari uh they in their book a thousand plateaus they have a a chapter that's it's a philosophical exploration but it's framed as kind of a a sci-fi story and this is actually pretty notable because uh in the final parts of the chapter they start splicing in parts of uh lovecraft text from lovecraft's um uh oh god the silver key story but they don't really like necessarily like frame it in quotes they just kind of start splicing elements of it in and so you can see there that it's like philosophy done as like pulp pulp fiction pulp sci-fi with this like kind of like Lovecraftian aspect
0: oh yeah yeah well I mean you could maybe even draw some parallels with Burroughs too who sort of had these you know elaborate you know the cut up method and all that stuff but I mean he still kind of used certain tropes from like you know detective fiction and you know oh yeah fiction and um oh gosh the Argentinian writer too Borges yes 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 another one so yeah I mean yeah I I think
1: that uh, Mark Fisher, he talks about theory fiction in uh, his Ph.D. thesis, which is called Flatline Constructs. And if I recall correctly, he uses both Borges and Burroughs as examples of theory fiction.
0: Yes, yes, I believe he does, too. Um, and that's an excellent work, by the way, if you guys out there. Uh,
1: you yeah, it's probably if you want to just kind of cut to the core of what the CCRU is, you can just read Flatline Constructs.
0: All right. So let's go on to another uh, term that they had that's uh, equally fascinating. And that's hyperstition, a combination of hyper and superstition. So what is that about?
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, hyperstition, it's the science of self-fulfilling prophecies. And like you mentioned, it's the combination of hyper and superstition. And so I kind of break that down. I, I think that the hyper probably is taken from Baudrillard's hyper-real because we're kind of dealing with a reality that's no longer, you know, real anymore. Uh, The fictionalization of the world through simulation and superstition, you know, they they treat superstitions as uh, social systems of beliefs, uh, almost kind of like memes in a way. And, And so really what the hyperstition is, is reworking, Baudrillard's simulation theory and the kind of like a more chaotic and dynamic form, uh, it's modeled on the feedback loop process and it's a process through which fictions make themselves real. And this is kind of strange. So I think there's like a couple examples that I think really probably better illustrate it than just the definition of it alone. But like, uh, like one is in Marx and this is one that they really paid attention to, uh, Capitalism itself is a, a social fiction, he calls capital an abstraction, and people act as if it's real. And through this acting, if it's real, it kind of conditions society becomes the basis for a capitalist society, but it's fictional, but it's no longer fictional because it's real it kind of goes beyond this, this distinction between the two. And capitalism also deploys fictions in order to expand itself. Uh, one that the uh, dynamic that the CCRU was just like really fascinating with was what they called hype. You know, the building up of hype around products and brands, and the you know the hype itself creates the markets for these products. Uh, they kind of see the entrepreneur as somebody who's almost channeling uh, a hyperstitional process in order to make markets. Um, and Then uh, this is one that I really liked. Uh, do, do you remember Steven back in 2019 when there was the, the panic about something called the Momo challenge?
0: Uh, not off the top of my head. Uh, what was it like the ice bucket challenge or something like that? Uh,
1: no it, it was the Momo was this weird image of a, a bird-like creature. It was created by a concept artist But somewhere this like urban legend sprung up, that there was the Momo challenge that was spreading on the internet and it was encouraging people to uh, kill themselves or something. And of course, it wasn't like real, but the story that started proliferating, I think this was a really big panic in Britain. It was like, oh, the Momo challenge crawled from the dark web and, you know, people were splicing it into kids' YouTube videos. And, And the media really kind of picked this up and ran with it. You know, which just spread the idea of the Momo Challenge anymore, even more, and this caused even more panic. You know, like schools were put on alert and like police were involved in it. And there's this great Guardian article about the Momo Challenge, and they quote somebody from this uh, NGO internet watchdog group called the Safer Internet Center. This person, this is an actual quote in a Guardian article, says that the Momo Challenge is a myth that is being perpetuated into some kind of reality. And I mean, that's what hyperstition is, you know, this whole thing kind of starts as a legend, but maybe through kind of like digital interconnection, uh, makes it into a reality. Uh, and you could also probably like link this up, you know, with uh, the whole idea of meme magic that kind of spread around the internet in like 2015 and 2016, you know, prior to Trump. And this is building on older, like, occult traditions. But it was a form that was distinctly incubated within the internet. And it spreads, you know, through, like, uh, through the internet as a contagion.
0: Now, in a curiosity, um, did they have a take on um, the Illuminatus trilogy? You was- know, I've n- never seen any reference
1: to it that I can think of. But I... We'll go back and kind of look around because it does resonate with certain aspects.
0: Yeah, you know? no. I mean, especially since there's so much stuff from the Illuminatus Trogi. I mean, I know I was uh, just reading a section of it a couple of days ago when I was working on my book and I had noticed how it had almost kind of um, predicted the, what is it, the seafaring movement um that's now really. So,
1: oh, c- seasteading?
0: Seasteading, yes, yes, that's yes, yeah. really big Like in libertarian circles and what have you But yeah, it's just, it's very interesting So much stuff, I mean, in the Illuminatus That would have seen, you know, when it was uh, Published in 75, that would have seemed So far out back then, I mean, now is kind of becoming more and more a reality every day
1: Yeah, yeah, that's That's funny thing too, with like a lot of the CCRU concepts, where it's like Some of it, like if you were Reading this in like 1994 When they were coming up with some of these ideas It'd be like, hmm, this seems pretty outrageous but now it's like hyperstition okay like i could definitely understand this better today than somebody probably could have back then
0: yeah absolutely all right now let's cover some of the other influences how does cybernetics apply i know uh its presence here may seem unusual to people who are not uh who are unfamiliar with the mysterious history of cybernetics so can you give us a rundown of that ed
1: yeah, um, that's like cybernetics ended up here in this was probably kind of inevitable. Um, this, the whole idea of self-organizing systems that Sadie Plant was so interested in, uh, that whole thing came out of the history of cybernetics. And also many of the like French philosophers that we've been talking about made lots of references to cybernetics. Like the Situationists talked about it, the Losing Wattari talked about it. Uh, Cybernetics was very important for Baudrillard. The whole notion of simulation is based pretty much entirely on cybernetic principles. And then you also have like a more basic fact that cybernetics is instrumental to the history of like computing information communication. And so the thing that the CCRU takes from cybernetics, particularly, is the whole idea of the the feedback loop. Um, This is important in what's now called first-order cybernetics, introduced by a World War II-era engineer and mathematician, Norbert Wiener. And he conceptualized cybernetics as a science of communication and control, is what he called it. And he, he thought that pretty much any system in existence was governed by feedback processes and his kind of model for everything was a, a servo mechanism. And for him, like what's important is that feedback is used to kind of produce homeostasis or equilibrium. You know, you, you have like kind of uh, responses that are generated through feedback processes that kind of balance each other out. And this allowed him to think of various systems as organizational patterns that were, uh, I guess, self-governing would be the best way to put it. And this is actually really important for technological thinking because it starts to break down the barriers between natural and artificial systems, kind of seeing how they interact with one another. But probably the most important aspect is that for Norbert Wiener, homeostasis is produced by what he called negative feedback. You know, it's a system that is being kept or keeping itself like under control. And Wiener, at least in the C, negative feedback
0: is uh, is system sustaining, which is also why common than positive feedback, which is actually uh, destructive.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, And, and this is precisely. Like the division that uh, the CCRU is interested in, they were interested in positive feedbacks. Like you said, it's, it's a system that's going out of control. It's a disequilibrium. You know, flying far from homeostasis. Uh, There's this Japanese cybernetician. Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. Um, right off the top of my head, but he talked about what he called the, the age of positive feedback What he also called like the second cybernetics. And the only place I'd seen him reference was actually by the CCRU. And so seemed like very, very obscure, even by their standards. So I was really trying to figure out like, how do they know about this guy? Well, I finally found, um, are you familiar with Alvin Toffler?
0: Uh, The futurist, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. He was the big futurist yeah, in the 70s and 80s.
0: Third wave, I think, or something. Yeah, like.
1: third wave and future shock. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, this idea of basically, you know, an accelerative future based on like increasing rates of technological breakthrough. And in that book, Toffler used positive feedback as a model. And he cited this Japanese cybernetician. So I think that that probably is the place where they got it from. And so they had this whole idea, like in Toffler, you have this idea that like positive feedback, like technology feeds into technology. You know, in economics at the time, you had the idea of like increasing returns uh, or network effects. You know, network effects is when like uh, more elements are added to a network, the greater the value of the network. And thus that will attract more elements to it. That's, you know, that's a positive feedback process. And that's very important, like in the tech industry, like Microsoft based itself on the idea of network effects, you know, it's kind of instrumental for the internet itself. So you have this very deep complicity, even though like positive feedback is going out of control. It's a self-compounding process. It's very, very interwoven with how we've done and thought technology, you know, in the last four or five decades Um, and so that's really what's important for the CCRU thinking through positive feedback Um, it's a very early text by Sadie Plant and Nick Land it's called cyber positive and cyber positive is their term for positive feedback and cyber negative is negative feedback And this text just has like a whole litany of like escalating systems going out of control. Like it talks about like runaway capitalism, you know, capitalism compounding itself and viruses, you know, pandemics spreading across the world and subcultures proliferating and, you know, climate change, runaway global warming. And it talks about like a convergence of crises that are challenging the quote unquote human security system. And the human security system for them is this kind of power structure that wants to maintain homeostasis. You know, it's the state or whatever else, but the the human security system for them will never truly be able to hold back the kind of explosive torrents of positive feedback that are kind of rupturing out in that moment.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, it's, you know, that's actually a very apt, I think, for the, what I think, you know, we're kind of seeing as the decline of the neoliberal order now.
1: Yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, It, it felt going back, I went back and reread that before we started recording and it kind of struck me. It was like, oh, here's like references to like the ice caps melting and here's, you know, references to viruses, you know, going across the world. It's like, man, it's pretty prescient.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, also to to sort of elaborate a bit on cybernetics. I mean, it's not even just in, um, you know, I mean, computers that they've had that they, you know, ideologies had such a large impact. I mean, of course, you could point to a lot of the other hard sciences, but I mean, it's also had a very profound influence on some more metaphysical currents as well. I pointed this out before, but I mean, it bears repeating a lot of uh, Jacques Vallée's concept of a control system that he applied in ufology is based on cybernetic principles, for instance. And, um, you know, you'll even see it crop up in things like chaos magic, for instance. I mean, I just finished reading uh, Condensed Chaos by Philip Hines, uh, where there's even some uh, attempts to try to uh, view chaos magic through the prism of cybernetics. So uh, it has had a very wide-reaching influence and a lot of different currents throughout the 20th century and beyond even though it's yeah very rarely talked about now unfortunately
1: yeah for sure um this is something that I've kind of pondered and you know you bring it up I, I might as well kind of pick your brain about this um does Jacques Vallée when he's talking about the cybernetic control system Does he subscribe to the simulation hypothesis, not the Baudrillard simulation hypothesis, but the one that posits that we're like living in a literal computer simulation? Is is that something that he believes? And is that what the cybernetic control system is?
0: I don't know. That would probably be something, a better question for our colleague Terence Bishop. Um, but I could definitely see that. I mean, especially since it's not really talked about, but Valet really did have such a, a large influence on Silicon Valley. I mean, of course his main racket was uh, as a computer scientist which people tend to forget. And uh, he was also a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Yeah,
1: and it, it's not an uncommon belief in those circles that we are living in a simulation, you know? But I was just, I've tried to understand how he, like, how he thinks the control system. And, you know, maybe there's some other explanation, but it just, it seems to me that the simulation hypothesis is the most logical frame for how he thinks that it works.
0: Yes, it would certainly be interesting to look into that. I mean, of course, also I think it was. I know from Valet's perspective too. It was also the sense that the what was beyond the control system was essentially unfathomable to the human intellect. I mean, it was a totally different kind of intelligence. I mean, something that we really weren't uh, capable of understanding. You know. Uh, so I mean, there's it's all- just
1: quite a like. That, that's very close to the, the CCRU, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But, I was going to say, I didn't they cite... I'm pretty sure Valet was cited as one of their influences at some point, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he was, um, for sure. They, they mentioned him. This is kind of like later stage CCRU stuff. But I've also... I've never quite understood how... Like, they, they cite him as an influence, but they never. I've never really figured out how they used him or how they interpreted him um they they seem he seems to have like influenced the fiction they wrote but i have a hard time kind of unpacking it like on the theoretical level if you know what i mean
0: well, I think it just it might potentially play into some of his thoughts about trying to trigger the control system effectively. Um, you know, creating essentially waves of like high strangeness and that type of thing. I mean, yeah, that like that, that was,
1: makes sense.
0: That's kind of what they were attempting to do with their own, you know, hyperstitions and that type of thing. I mean, create positive feedback loops. I mean, in a sense, that's almost I think what some of the people around Valé were sort of advocating as a means of activating the control system. I mean, something that would be. Uh, seen as a threat or something that would initiate all of this strangeness essentially
1: (laughs) right yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense uh i I think in a weird enough way they might have taken the control system to be the human security system and it was like you kind of got to bust out of it by triggering it uh more research is required to kind of figure out what exactly is going on there i guess
0: Yeah, I mean, it is uh, an interesting concept, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, well, okay, here's another one. All right, uh, right now it might be a good time. Har har, to delve into the CCRU's <laughs> whole concept of time travel. They were utterly obsessed with it. At one point Nick Land even speculated that capitalism was the creation of an artificial intelligence from, from the future that needed to be that needed a means of assembling itself. Its the creation of capitalism. And try your best to explain this to us.
1: All right, yeah, so um, I think that the, the whole idea of the, the AI in the future, that is still very much a part of how he understands our world. And it's really difficult. And it's probably the most like misunderstood of his like approaches, because when we hear like an AI in the future, don't we kind of think of like a, a, a robot or like a singular thing. That's kind of like traveling through time. But when land talks about, AI what he's really talking about is like systems intelligence you know like when you look at like complexity theory you have this whole notion of like where a, a system itself even if it's made up of intelligent components can be more intelligent than the sum of its parts so like you know some uh, a complexity theorist might look at like uh, a swarm of bees or a flock of birds or a school of fish and see a greater intelligence in the kind of swarm formation than like the individual parts. And so for Nick Land, the AI is, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it because it is really freaking difficult. Um, okay, so he thinks of capitalism as an intelligence system. This comes out of uh, Frederick Hayek. Hayek had talked about how prices in the market convey information. And so if you're talking about prices conveying information, the next logical step is saying that the market as a whole is an information processor, right? And so for land, like capitalism is a big computer. And if systems have intelligence, you could say that capitalism itself, in a way, is already artificial intelligence. And so when you're up at that point then you have to throw in like the next step like talk about like the singularity. What is the singularity? It's a tendency for all technological systems to connect together, you know, the internet digital interconnection. So singularity for land is kind of like a system of systems that's all interconnected and it's going live. And it begins to manufacture itself. And so when he's talking about the future AI, I think that that's really what he means more than like a singular artificial intelligence. But you you get to that and then it's even more mysterious because it's like, well, why is, how is it in the future? working backwards on the past yeah, because it's
0: it's almost like a collective consciousness that was brought about by a merger of um you know human consciousness and machine consciousness as i understand it so yeah it's, yeah uh...
1: yeah and for him like it kind of like reaches the point where it no longer needs its human component you know like, he, he likes like talks about like elon musk apparently once like said like oh, what if humans are like biological bootloaders for advanced intelligence? And I think that like he takes that idea very seriously that like, you know, it's kind of constructing itself through us, Um, which then you have to kind of like ask like, well, what, how does he understand time in order for that to really make sense? And this is where things start to get like, both like probably his most like intensely philosophical aspect uh, but probably also the weirdest. And so, like to really understand it, you have to go back to Immanuel Kant. Like Land was a Kant is a Kantian philosopher at heart, and the CCRU was very, very into Kant. And so for Kant, the we perceive time as working in a certain way. We see it like it's a timeline. But for Kant, this is a cognitive process. You know, we we input sensory data and it's arranged according to what he calls a schematism that renders it intelligible. But if that's happening internally, time itself doesn't necessarily function in this way for like he, he talks about how like what we perceive isn't the full totality of what something is we only perceive like a small part of it it's rendered intelligent like it, it rendered intelligibly within ourselves and so what land does is he takes this and he kind of instead of saying it's a, in the cognitive realm he wants to put it out kind of into the universe itself he talks about what's called like time production. What produces time itself? Time cannot be just like its own thing. Something has to make time. Therefore time is inside something wider, grander. Uh, That is the outside. Um, And inside we just have this like very straight linear time. And so this starts to challenge like traditional notions of causality, because on the inside, if it's arranged like a timeline, we have a past, we have a present, we have a future. But on the outside, in time production, there is no past, present, and future. And so when he says that it's coming from the future, that's only because it appears to us this way it's actually an event outside of time that's kind of working its way into time it's a notion of retro causality and the way that i think that this needs to be thought like let's go back to the example of like a self-organizing system Like in chaos theory, you know, this is a a big study of of how systems self-organize. They talk about what are called attractors. And as systems are being pulled towards attractors and they, they get to it and they kind of undergo a phase shift, they change their character, maybe they kind of come together, things change. And so when we think in chaos theory, it's usually thought in terms of like, a spatial dimension, you know, this is happening in space. The attractor is like a a spot in a landscape and the systems are pulled towards it. But what if we like change that frame just a little bit? Let's not think in terms of space, but think in a temporal dimension in time. And so the attractor is actually in a future state and the systems are being pulled towards it. And that's like the systems are being pulled towards a point in the future. And that's like the future itself is reaching back, right? And so for the CCRU, they start to formalize this notion as what they call the time spiral. And this reintroduces our notion of acceleration. And so we could think of the attractor as being in the center and the spiral is moving inwards towards this center point. And, you know, as it's getting closer to it, the curves of the spiral are getting smaller and smaller. And so you're moving faster, the closer you get to it. Uh, It's actually an idea that I think comes out of Terrence McKenna. He had this exact same concept. He called it the Uh, transcendental concrescence that all of time was being pulled towards Uh, as kind of an apocalyptic event for McKenna and it's apocalyptic for the CCRU as well we could think of McKenna's concrescence for them as the singularity maybe and so this reconceives basically all of terrestrial history it's being pulled into the spiral you know being rushed towards this future attractor uh, I have no idea if that made any sense at all, but I hope it did a little bit at least.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, about as much as you can do with this kind of subject. Um, yeah. Now, you mentioned McKenna. Now, they saw like um, the archaic revivals, I understand it, as like an example of this like kind of time displacement you're alluding to, right?
1: Exactly. Um, be- because time... Is working. Go over, in such the,
0: um, go over the Archaic Revival briefly for the, you know, I don't know if everybody knows what that is, just to sort of, you know, people can grasp what we're getting at here.
1: Right. The, the Archaic Revival in the limited sense was the name of uh, a McKenna book, terence McKenna. He was uh, uh, either like, was he a scientist or was his brother a scientist? I know that his brother was for
0: sure, but was he as well? Maybe it was his brother. He might have been. I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah.
1: Um, I feel like I should know. I read his book, but. Uh, the, the Archaic Revival was this kind of very interesting thing that happened in the, in the 90s, whereas all these kind of digital uh, technologies, the world was coming online. Uh, there was kind of this explosion of this very old, you know, like tribalism, uh, uh, occult traditions, very, yeah, like, like uh, archaisms came rushing back this kind of like preoccupation with our ritual and uh, ancient civilizations maybe even lost civilizations This very kind of mystical strange environment um I think the CCRU were looking at that and they were asking like why is that happening in relation to digital technologies? You know, this is that kind of traces of the culture studies from which they emerged in the first place, kind of peeking through, but it's more like for them, this is kind of a cultural expression of the time spiral itself. You know, the future and the past are kind of connecting, you know, this weird deposits happening at this point, um,
0: yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, a lot of um, the, the archaic revival was really centered around San Francisco. I mean, which was also uh, really at the heart of the emerging, you know, personal computer. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it wasn't emerging anymore. It was a thing. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it was really at the heart of a lot of the major technological advances that society was undergoing at that moment. And then, of course, obviously the return of psychedelics, uh, which, again, was a major preoccupation of that whole scene. Yeah.
1: Chinese um, mysticism.
0: Mm-hmm, the, the I Ching was very important for McKenna yeah.
1: and for a lot of other people.
0: Well, it's it's also interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the stuff. I think it was Jack Sarfati and maybe a I don't know if there are other members of the fundamental physics group or not who subscribed to it, but I believe Sarfati had actually become convinced that he was a, a time traveler. I'm not sure if he's... Still- oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if he still holds that belief, but um, yeah, that's sort of alluded to like in Destiny Matrix and some of his other, uh, you know, writings, which are...
1: Oh, I didn't know that. That's, I'm going to have to look at that.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I know. Well, it, uh, another oh go ahead. Well, it's just kind of interesting too, because Sarfati kind of plays into that whole, you know, scene that um you know Robert Anton Wilson chronicles and the cosmic trigger that was kind of centered around Berkeley and SRI and Stanford in the 70s, um, which obviously Valet was also a part of. And um so, yeah, I mean, obviously also the whole, um, the concept of the Nine and Spectra. I'm kind yeah. of curious now thinking about if Land, did I maybe have conceived of something like that? Because, I mean, obviously the, um, I mean, obviously they changed the story to a few points. But, I mean, at one point it was what, like a consciousness and a, a spaceship or something after they had transcended their physical forms. And, um, yeah, yeah.
1: The, the the you talk about the nine right like yeah yeah uh, yeah and guys like, yeah they were f- floating yeah. out by jupiter i think
0: something like that and guys like gary geller and sarfati had been contacted uh to be their emissaries and yeah
1: <laughs> yeah w- w- what's funny about the CCRU is that i think that they were definitely keeping an eye on this stuff but they also kind of ridicule it in a way like their vision's much darker you know uh there's like uh early text where one of the lines talks about like California being in flames and like the idiot gurglings of the singulatarians, you know, thinking that they're going to live forever. Um, so I think like they, they were obviously part of this tendency, you know, the archaic revival is definitely present in them, but for them, it's more, you know, uh, it's more of a indication of humanity on its way to extinction than necessarily the yeah, transcendence yeah, yeah. that I mean, you find in california
0: yeah i mean a lot of that was very i mean the california scene i mean was very utopian leaning i mean obviously when you look at guys like brawl or timothy leary i mean they kind of hailed you know the coming cyber culture is uh, ushering in a new golden age effectively um Whereas obviously the CCRU took a uh, much more cynical view of what was unfolding. Um,
1: yeah, it was cynical and exciting, it was like for them, it was like the thrill was kind of tuning yourself into the apocalypse. I think is the the way I've seen it described.
0: Certainly, it would seem that the uh, CCRU worldview has uh, proven to be a little bit more accurate.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I would say so.
0: Okay, so let's get into a little bit more of the woo-woo stuff. Um some of these guys became quite taken with alistair Crowley, Kenneth Grant, and what I've dubbed the uh the Lovecraft gnosis Uh so take us through some of the additional woo.
1: Okay, yeah, th- this is like probably some of my favorite stuff, so I'm pretty excited to talk about this. Um I guess like there's two important things to like keep in mind when exploring the the cult dimension of the CCRU. Um, because like you know they're starting from the position of hyperstition you know that's fiction that's making itself real and so they're not really interested in whether or not mysticism is real you know in like a metaphysical sense what's more important for them is that people believe them and that they uh produce effects in this world you know they talk about like Crowley and Blavatsky kind of starting as con artists, but I think we could also kind of connect this to what you were saying earlier about um, like, like Whitley Strieber and other people being sci-fi writers, you know, before kind of getting into this uh, high strangeness. So you kind of see these as a uh, hyperstitional, you know, um, procedures taking place. And so what the CCRU advocated was what they called unbelief. And this is neither belief or disbelief, but kind of a suspension of the, the decision, you know, not coming down on, on either way. And, you know, for unbelief by suspending the decision, they feel like you can kind of get like the purest engagement with the phenomena
0: itself. So is it, so is it almost like Rawls' advocacy of agnosticism? I, you know, that's, it probably is in a way, actually.
1: Um, I I don't know if it goes as far as his whole like reality tunnel stuff. um, Because I feel like his reality tunnel is kind of giving in to belief, but, you know, being able to pull yourself back. Whereas for the CCRU, it seems to be just a complete and total suspension in a way. Um, That's a really good question. It it is really similar. Now that you mentioned, I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, but and I guess the the other part, and this probably resonates with some of Robert Anton Wilson as well, actually, um, is that they're operating in in a critique of metaphysics. You know, and this is keeping in line, like we talked earlier about Immanuel Kant. You know, Kant was writing like the first true modern philosopher and his whole project was kind of the critique of metaphysical systems. And, you know, in metaphysics, you kind of have like a uh, transcendent realms. And so this is very clear in things like theosophy is metaphysics. You know, you have these spiritual realms that are transcendent. So if you're doing like a critique of mystical metaphysics, it, it, they eliminate the transcendent. They make it material and this is something that Lovecraft is actually already kind of doing because ultimately in Lovecraft, there's a scientific explanation for everything that happens, but it's beyond our capacity to really like grok it or understand. And, you know, when we we confront it head on, we go mad. Um, And so mysticism for them kind of becomes a way to explore The limits and breakage points of our interiority, you know, talking kind of similar to what we are saying earlier about time. You know, it's supposed to be about direct encounters with the outside, what's beyond our cognitive capabilities. And this also kind of calls back to Land's whole uh, inhuman perspective. And so they, they kind of reformulate Crowley and Grant as what they call time sorcery. And this is a exploration of, of the points where, you know, the interiority breaks down, uh, maybe catching glimpses of the time spiral, uh, the past and the future kind of depositing, you know, strange things in the present. So I, I think the the stuff about the archaic revival can be thought in the same exact way as their kind of interest in, in Crowley and Grant and Lovecraft. Uh, and th- this leads and they end up formulating this entire like myth- mythical system based on a conflict between the Lemurians and what they call the, the architectonic order of the Eschaton or the AOE. And the AOE in the mythos, they descend from Atlantis. And the, th- this is kind of an update of their earlier idea of the human security system. The AOE and the, the human security system, they're the same thing. And the Lemurians are self-organizing processes, so it's kind of allegorical for what they've been talking about all along. The the AOE wants to repress the Lemurian tendencies, um, but the Lemurian tendencies are are because they're self-organizing, they're kind of aligned with this radical outside. And so when you have that, like you, you can go through and read a lot of their like mythical writings. And, and as long as like you kind of keep in mind that this really is kind of like the, the positive, feed, fundamentally like negative feedback AOE versus positive feedback Lemurians, like it, it all starts to kind of make sense. know, um, they did stuff like uh, they, they reworked the tree of life into something they called the pneumogram. Uh, this is a, a time map that could kind of illustrate the escape routes and weird slippage points from, you know, being inside time. Um, they developed a calendar based on the movements within the numogram. Uh, They developed a, a, a Kabbalah that they believed was the fabled English Kabbalah that Crowley had kind of prophesized, you know, the one that would inaugurate the next Aeon. And their Kabbalah that they develop actually unlocks certain things in, in Crowley's texts. Like when you put uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, like into their Kabbalistic cipher, it comes out as seven, seven, seven. So that's, you know, pretty, pretty significant. I think, um, land encodes most of his writings with all kinds of like Kabbalistic clues, uh, You know, so there's always, like, hidden messages that he's... Like, he's still using this method today. Um, He also, like, is governed by the numogram itself. Like, his three Twitter accounts are based on movements and the numograms. And for a while, he was even, like, regulating his tweeting in correspondence with the Lemurian calendar. So, like, this is stuff that they developed in the 90s, but it's still, like really there today, you know, like this is something he takes extremely seriously, like as a way of like kind of uh being in communication with the uh the outside. And I guess there's one last uh of this kind of like far out occultism that I wanted to mention because it kind of it's another one that kind of gets like sidelined like everybody kind of focuses on the Kabbalah and the pneumogram. But it's they, they had this fascination with the liquid outer core of, of the, the earth, you know, the deep buried in the earth. There's like a, a liquid kind of metal ocean. And it's, I can't remember the technical name for it, but it's, you know, under intense pressure and it's electrified. And this is what generates Earth's magnetic fields. Um, and the CCRU was obsessed with this thing. They called it Cathel, And in their writings, they said that like, you know, this is Cthulhu from Lovecraft. Uh, This liquid iron ocean is the old ones. Um, And so like as late as like 2016, like Land was still talking about this. he talks about like how hallucinations and limit experiences and strange mental states and paranormal experiences Are the way that like Chathel's magnetic pulsions are are playing with our brains, you know, the relationship between magnetism and schizophrenia. But if we flip back to the CCRU, they talked about like the future merging with Chathel. They called it like an ethical imperative. And the idea was that advanced technological systems were plugging directly into chatel well when the singularity happens you know it's not just all systems coming together it's going to be chatel waking up and this is quite literally because if chatel is chatulu the old ones then the singularity is not just like a futuristic state it also is for them the return of the old ones, and if you kind of put this together, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, like you get the idea that the deeper you go into the process, kind of closer to the singularity point, uh, if there's this whole like iron, ocean, chisel uh, magnetism thing in play, you know, let's say that the more technologically advanced we get, the more paranormal and mystical the world will become. And, you know, that is funny because I was listening to the interview that you did with, like, the Penny Royal guys, and they started talking about, like, the magnetism, like, coming up from Somerset, Kentucky, and all this, like, weird stuff going on there. And I was like, oh, man, this is, like, literally exactly the same thing that, like, Land's kind of, like, baking into, like, his whole system.
0: Yeah, there's a lot I wanted to unpack there. So um, yeah, we
1: can we can dive deeper into some. The of first, that. Like, it
0: kind of reminded me a little bit about the um some of the oh, uh, claims that were coming out about quantum computing a couple of years ago. What that they were opening up uh, dimensions to the old ones or something like that.
1: Um, oh, I think I missed that. But if uh, you have yeah. any links, that kind of stuff, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll send it right.
0: to you. It was one specific tech company that was kind of indicating that. But yeah, it was interesting in light of some of Land's claims in that regard. Um okay so what about like the shaver mysteries and that type of thing i mean was that something that they were potentially sort of looking at when they were uh, alluding to the because that's sort of what it makes me think of this sort of allusion to this subterranean lair or something like that i suppose it also kind of plays into some of the um you know the earlier theosoph- theosophical takes on was it a gartha or something like that um, yeah
1: th- they were absolutely reading both theosophy uh blo- they were reading a lot of Blavatsky, but they were also reading uh, the Shaver Mysteries. Um, and I think that that kind of like plays into their whole idea of, you know, they, they didn't want to do philosophy in the, in the standard setting. So there was this whole idea of kind of like doing philosophy in a pulp setting. You know, this plays into the whole notion of theory fiction. So there's that, that side of it, you know, where it's like, you know, they want to do philosophy as a Shaver Mystery. Or as you know, an updated version of Shaver with with cyberpunk uh, elements kind of crafted into it. But then I think that there's like a real attention that is paid to kind of like the 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 chains of influence that are flowing, you know, down through yeah Theosophy into Shaver and elsewhere. But what they want to do is they want to strip all the elements of transcendence out of it to where there's like no spirit realms or anything like that. It's all like material, you know, might be processes we don't understand, but it's not spiritual per se. It's
0: fascinating. Um, I'm sure Land uh, was probably interested uh, in Hellier, <laughs> based on some of this stuff. Um, on that note, too, that uh, brings um, another question I had on that regard. Uh, what about uh, Alan Greenfield's uh, Secret Ciphers thing? Do you see that as possibly being an influence on some of their numerology?
1: I, I've wondered, uh, you know, like, but the thing is, is that their numerology is just really 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 simple like like alan greenfield's is really complicated um and so i'm not sure because the way that their Kabbalah works is that um you know it, it, they start off like for one they they hate uh that that numbers begin with this is a whole other thing that we i you know, it would take forever. We don't have to get into it too much. They really hate that letter. That numbers begin with one. You know, that they go from one to ten. They think this is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. So the CCRE replaces this with zero through nine. Okay, like, uh, and zero is a very important thing for them. Like, it's kind of the the matrix. The zero is the outside, I guess. It's it's the symbol of the outside. And so they have 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And then if you have A, A equals 10, B equals 11, C equals 12, and then you go through the end of the alphabet. And that's the whole cipher. It's just A, 10, B, 11, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that's like insanely simple and straightforward, but for some reason is able to like do weird things with Crowley's texts um and so i I would be really curious actually to know what greenfield thinks would i don't know if he's aware of their system but i would love to know like his thoughts on it
0: might be an interesting thing to pose to him yeah absolutely all right so um all right so how did the ccru come about in warwick then
1: uh pretty straightforward actually uh when sadie plant Uh, Before she was at Warwick, she was at uh, University of Birmingham, and she had like her own kind of culture studies unit there. Uh, One of her students was Mark Fisher, and he was part of this and a few other people. And so she ended up moving from the University of Birmingham to the University of Warwick, and she brought Fisher and a few other people there, and they kind of reformed themselves as the cybernetics culture research unit um, plant and land were dating. I'm not sure if they dated before the form started dating before the formation or after that's kind of how he got like drawn into this kind of thing as well. Um, and it, right from the get go, it always had like a controversial status with the university um, mainly because like it was dabbling in thinkers that were kind of like outside the norm but the whole idea of like doing philosophy, kind of in a more subcultural mode than an academic mode, kind of, you know, started bothering the university pretty much right away.
0: Okay, Sue, so, um, I know you divided the CCRU's history up into two separate phases. Okay, so let's uh, go through the first phase now, which stretched through much of the '90s when the group was still semi-respectable, right?
1: Yeah, this what I, I would kind of call the more plant-dominated phase. Um, and what it really was, the idea was that, like, you know, we, we talked earlier, you have uh, subcultures and sciences of self-organizing systems and, you know, economics and uh computer technology all kind of weaving together. So in the beginning, the CCRU was kind of conceived as like a multidisciplinary uh, research outfit. And so there's people, you know, from all different aspects uh, of academia, like they would have like computer scientists coming in and mathematicians and just kind of this like uh, kind of chaotic revolving door of people. Um, And that's really kind of Even though they wrote all their stuff in kind of this manic, uh, amphetamine, sub kind of punkish, post-punk kind of way, um, there was like a a very like multidisciplinary, uh, kind of more of a process of experimentation and exploration more than like standard academic work. But that's really what kind of dominated the, the beginnings of the CCRU.
0: You know, you raise an interesting point there. Um, Typically, you know, when we look at these kind of really far out scenes um, and the drugs that they're doing, it's typically some kind of psychedelic, maybe even an opiate. Um, But these guys were really into meth. Um, Could you maybe elaborate on that a a little bit? Because I know Land almost had a mystical association with meth, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
1: Yeah, he talks about like, he he doesn't the, – the, his essay, A Dirty Joke, also talks about, like, him doing LSD. But I think that was a little earlier. Um, he talks about how he doesn't recognize the person who wrote, you know, in the CCRU era and how that person was in, like, the clutches of the, the dead amphetamine god or something. Um, and I think that a lot of this actually had to do with the rave culture in Britain at the time. Uh, CCRU was extremely, and like – you know, jungle music uh, it was the, the genre most commonly associated with, with rave at the moment. Um, they, they were fascinated by it. And they thought that jungle music uh, was kind of like the, the sonic equivalent of the processes that they were exploring. And rave culture, of course, you know, the, the chemical enhancements were a, uh, a fundamental part of that culture. And so I think it's you know it's quite natural that they would be doing you know a lot of drugs. I, Fisher said that he never he wrote about never doing them, and I think that's pretty true because he was actually quite kind of a puritan. Um, you know, so he self declared himself that. But the, the other element is that they wanted to write texts that were like jungle music you know like could you read philosophy at the velocity of the music you were hearing on the dance floor and so that means like you got to import that kind of chemical substrate you know from the dance floor into your like research and your, your study and your way of life so I think yeah I, I think it really had to do with that the cultural context where the focus on uh, speed really came through
0: yeah, I could see also, too, how the whole rave scene uh, would have appealed to their sense of time travel as well. Because, I mean, on the one hand, it really was a very primal, I mean, thing, uh, you know, again, kind of going back to the kind of shamanistic practices yeah. of the ancient, very ancient world. But, I mean, on the same token, I mean, it's with music that's, you know, largely created by, uh, with, you know, machines, computers, uh, with drugs that have largely been manufactured. Um, right. You know.
1: And and, uh, another interesting part is that uh, there's a great book by music critic Simon Reynolds called Energy Flash, and it's about like the UK rave underground, and he draws attention to how there was like kind of this like free market ethos. In, in the rave scene, it wasn't seen as equivalent to capitalism. It was like these like bottom up kind of black markets, you know, uh, underground venues and black market recordings and black market drugs. And so I think that that probably also really kind of resonated with their like extreme focus on markets that they had. All
0: right. So let's see here. All right. So how about phase two this was when things really started to get weird right
1: yeah and i think phase two you know it's entering into phase two is kind of uh associated with like the the very notorious kind of meltdown that nick land himself kind of had uh extreme like amphetamine abuse and having his students do strange things like mapping words out on keyboards like they would have like you know like a a qwerty keyboard you know like have like some kind of phrase or something and kind of like draw lines of the letters that spell out the phrase um very interesting stuff uh this is when he was really getting into like numbers a whole bunch so apparently he was doing you know lots of speed and running these like computer number crunching programs for like days on end uh sadie plant exits at this point apparently like it was, it was just getting too strange for her and they got booted out of warwick university um pretty much in full and that that was the La- that was land's exit from uh academia and they moved into a house which was reported this was in coventry england and was reported to be alistair crowley's house and so it was in this setting is when like the Real kind of like mysticism and like engagement with occultism, uh, really kind of started to spring up. Um, and I was thinking more about it, you could probably add a third phase in there as well. Um, it has a lot of the same attributes as phase two, but it, in around 2002, I think Land and uh, Anna Greenspan, who was another member of the CCRU, they moved to Shanghai. and there was kind of an attempt for a few years to keep the group together uh, by communicating over blogs and stuff. And a lot of this was still focused on like the occult dimension, but it just kind of kind of drifted apart after a little while.
0: Alright, one thing I um, forgot to bring up in the that I think might be kind of interesting um, to note here right quick was the group's take on Y2K, because they effectively thought that uh, the world really had come to an end at Y2K, right?
1: Yeah, it, it's kind of complicated because this has to do with the um, uh, the division between like the inside and the outside, you know, the interior time that we perceive, and the, the kind of external production of time that we're kind of closed off from uh in Deleuze and Guattari they have their own kind of version of this between what they call chronos and chronos is this internal sense of time like historical time it's chronological and they have a external time that they call aeon uh interesting resonance here with Crowley actually Uh, and so like they kind of talk about what they call like aonic events. And these are kind of events where like this external time ruptures into history, uh, into chronos. And uh, Anna Greenspan did write like a, a book or not a book, but it was her PhD thesis where the, the first whole book is like, you know, very straightforward uh, exploration of themes of time uh, in, in like capitalist modernity and in philosophy and then in the very conclusion she uses all this to kind of argue that yes Y2K did happen like you know it wasn't like the big blackout we thought would happen but it was an aonic occurrence kind of this rupturing of the outside into the history and you know it was uh, if you do kind of like look back and you start adding up kind of the costs that were associated with Y2K and like the stuff that happened, it was one of the most expensive disasters that's happened in human history, even though the disaster itself never really materialized.
0: All right. So what are some of the influences uh, that the CCRU has had on left wing acceleration going into the 21st century? Uh, this is pretty fascinating
1: because it actually you can trace uh, left accelerationism or LAC as it has kind of become you know it's kind of the shorthand for it. Uh, you can trace this straight back to the CCRU actually kind of crumbling apart. Um, in the main division that kind of formed was between Mark Fisher and Nick Land. Like uh, you know N- Nick Land. Basically, it was like gung-ho capital, basically like almost an anarcho-capitalist, you know. Uh, Everything had to side with the dynamic tendencies of capitalism. But, But Fisher kind of went back to a lot of the influences, like, you know, like Marx. We talked earlier about how, for Marx, capitalism does generate this technological, like, you know, evolution that threatens it but it has to restrain it. You know, it can't fully develop its technological uh, interiority. And so Fisher was like, well, there's that. And then there's also into losing Atari. Yeah. Capitalism generates this, you know, great schizophrenia, but it also has to repress it, you know, for capitalism to survive, it has to repress its most dynamic tendencies because it's dynamic tendencies threaten to overthrow it. And so It's these two, you know, Fisher becoming increasingly vocally anti-capitalist and land going deeper into pro-capitalism is the kind of breakage point uh, for the CCRE, right? And so what Fisher becomes interested in is what he, you know, calls the slow cancellation of the future. And that's really telling right off the bat because like we've been talking about acceleration up to this point but after the CCRU you know Fisher switches gear he's talking about the slow cancellation it's no longer a fast process we're kind of back into what he hates the most which is the postmodern condition you know for for Fisher like some of his first writings in the CCRU were about postmodernism. This makes sense for him as like a student of plant. But so the the future that the CCRU had been envisioning never happened. And what's worse, if you looked at culture at large, this is kind of like what we talked about last time, nothing new is being produced culturally. Uh, There was just kind of repetition culture, you know, reboot culture, you know. Uh, In the early 2000s, you know, like any band, this is, you know, he did a lot of music writing, Fisher did. Um, It's all kind of like mm, return to the 80s, uh, I think that was true for like the UK and the US, you know, there's a lot of like neo-psychedelic music. Well, a lot of that's good, but it wasn't like profoundly new. It was just kind of a, a recycle culture. And, you know, around this time, Fisher starts talking about what he calls hauntology. And hauntology is a concept from the philosopher of Jacques Derrida. And this kind of takes its cue from the notion that kind of got popular in the 80s and 90s that history itself had ended. Um, you know, this was really like Francis Fukuyama, the neoconservative, wrote a big book called The End of History. Um, and Derrida was interested in how history is ended, but it's haunted by ghosts of the futures that had failed to arrive. And Derrida wrote, like, the future belongs to ghosts. And so Fisher's looking at this in like a cultural register, um, exploring what he calls like hauntological aesthetics, uh, play with themes of specter and decay and echo. You know, it's artists like Burial, a British electronic artist, or uh, another guy named the caretaker. Um, and it's very—it's hard for me to explain like what they sound like, and also I'm not quite sure. You know, I've had a hard time kind of like getting a pure handle on what the stakes are for Fisher with hauntology. It's not clear if he thinks that it's another form of postmodernism, or if it's something that is an alternative to postmodernism. But this led to a really big debate, um, guy named Alex Williams, uh, ends up critiquing hauntology that it is just postmodernism. And he, you know, this is a friendly critique because Williams and Fisher were like, they they were pretty close. Uh, you can find a lot of blog exchanges between them. And so Williams as an alternative to hauntology and a postmodernism, posits what he calls post-Landian acceleration. And so what this is is about removing the blockages, about like if capital represses technological development, you need to remove that element that's doing that kind of repressing. Or if it's repressing these schizophrenic energies, you need to remove that element as well. And so this actually kind of has a profound effect because in Land's version of acceleration, the human agent doesn't play any role in the process. It's just kind of being ripped along for the ride, you know? Um, But Williams and his acceleration quite explicitly puts the human back in because somebody has to remove these blockages on these processes. And, uh, you know, Williams was also like under the influence of uh, Reza Negrestani, And Reza had been with the CCRU in its final stage when it was basically all online. And and Reza started to become interested in navigation. How does one strategically navigate in this world, generate ways of building out from it? And Reza today is like a big figure in what's called like the neo-rationalist movement. And so like all these kind of ideas are swirling about, and that's kind of what left accelerationism started as a lot of these debates uh, took place in blog circles and strange conferences in 2008, you know, right around the, the financial crisis. Um, it took a few years. 2013, um, Alex Williams and another blogger who had participated in a lot of this guy named Nick Cernicek, they wrote the, the left accelerationist manifesto. And this was actually a direct response to the failure of Occupy Wall Street. Um, they critiqued Occupy Wall Street's like horizontalism, uh, rejection of hierarchy, and like kind of commitment to the organic. And they wanted like a left that was comfortable with uh, technology and abstraction, and science. And it was actually really like people got really mad at their manifesto. There was a lot of uh, attacks on it. And so when they ended up writing, a kind of expanding it into a book, they ended up dropping accelerationism, like the term entirely from it, and focused mainly on like political demands, which, the you know, were like universal basic income and like full automation. Uh, so that's kind of like where that form of left accelerationism went. And a, another branch was called xenofeminism. And it went a little further than Uh, Williams and Cernichek and they kind of plugged it back into a lot of the stuff that Sadie Plant was doing Um, but it's kind of difficult to assess the state of left accelerationism today like xenofeminism is still quite popular but left accelerationism as a project I think is pretty much dead in the water
0: it took a blow I believe too when Mark Fisher committed suicide right
1: yeah, for sure. Uh, and what's interesting, Mark Fisher was working um, on a different project that he called Acid Communism. It was an incomplete project. And it was very much kind of like in line with the left accelerationist version. But I guess he kind of put it more into like a pop culture, uh, countercultural, even subcultural kind of mode. Um A good friend of mine blogs under the name Xenogothic. He was one of Fisher's students, and so he's been kind of like doing a lot of work to kind of repiece back together like uh, what exactly he was working on there at the end because it is all very fragmentary.
0: Yes, yes. Now, Fisher is definitely fascinating and, um, you know, probably the most underrated, in my opinion, of the CCRU thinkers
1: yeah he's really fantastic and it is really tragic to to you know have lost him If you go back and read through his blog, he was very open you know pretty much for decades about his struggles with depression, so mm. very sad how that turned out
0: yeah. I know in general, too, I mean, he was very uh, disappointed with the direction things had gone. I mean, of course, the 90s, you know, when we reflect back on it, I mean, it was probably the last time that there was any real vibrancy, at least in Western culture, that we can remember. It uh, definitely seemed like we were heading towards a much more positive uh, future than what we ultimately came to. Uh,
1: Right. Yeah. And that's like his whole idea that he introduces is like what he calls like capitalist realism. And it kind of is the whole idea that there is no alternative, like, he doesn't, he thinks that there's clearly alternatives, but like to to the world as we know it, but the whole kind of like ruling ideology of this world is that there isn't an alternative, and that's kind of like what he was very interested in exploring, because he thought that the fact that like, we're confronted with no alternatives is why like nothing can happen culturally because if there's no alternative to how things are now then there can never be anything new it's like the the postmodern condition in its most extreme form
0: yeah no i mean that definitely does seem to be one of the bigger issues is a lack of a, an imagination to really conceive of a better world
1: right yeah <clears throat>
0: All right. So let's get into Nick Land's latter period career during the past decade. He's become a darling uh, in neo-reactionary uh, and dark enlightenment circles. Ed, can you explain this peculiar transformation for us?
1: Yeah, it, it's funny because there's both like breaks and continuities uh, in, in this transformation. Um, you know, mentioned earlier that he had like moved to Shanghai in, in 2002 At that point, like the CCRU did try to maintain itself with its members kind of scattered around the globe. And this was, you know, the period in which Land and Fisher kind of had their growing tensions with, you know, Fisher going more left-wing, Land going more right-wing. And so the, the group kind of imploded in this context. And funny enough, Land's tone started to get more moderate, started to kind of like lose that kind of like, extreme edge there for a little bit. Like he wrote some travel guides. Like you can find like the Nick land uh, Shanghai travel guide. Um, he worked as a journalist for a bit and blogged on like technology and culture, like some interesting stuff about like keeping up with trends and urban development and 3d printing and AI research. And, and so like, in a lot of ways it was like, Oh, Nick, like it's getting more mature. Right. But then around 2013, he encountered uh, Mencius Moldbug, uh, who's Curtis Yarvin. Um, and, and Mencius Moldbug is the main thinker behind Neo Reaction. And I think that the idea that grabbed land was that Mincius Moldbug had introduced this concept he called patchwork. And the here's a quote from moldbug i think probably captures it better than i could explain it but but moldbug writes as the crappy governments we inherited from history are smashed they should be replaced by a global spider web of tens even hundreds of thousands of sovereign and independent mini countries each governed by its own joint stock corporation without regard to the residents opinions if the residents don't like their government, they can and should move. The design is all exit, no voice. And so, what's the, the important thing here—the exit over voice concept? Uh, voice just basically means uh, in any form of democratic government, you know, the, the voice of the people. In patchwork, there's just basically corporate city-states, and there's no democratic representation within them. If you don't like your particular city-state, you just leave the way that you would like quit shopping at a store that you didn't like. Um it's so like Moldbug was writing kind of like in a in a moment of a libertarian revival, you know, this was the era of Obama like, you know, quote unquote hip progressivism. And so Moldbug was following the libertarian skepticism of the government, but he kind of rejected the libertarian kind of ethos as two idealists. He didn't want to get rid of the state, you know, or, or its functions. He just wanted to shrink the state into city states and run them as businesses and have the state companies kind of compete with one another on the global market. And so, I mean, this is already like a pretty cyberpunk idea. So you could see why Nick Land would, grapple grapple onto it it's just interesting because it's from the other direction you know like these are the people who would kind of like uh be looked down upon in this cyberpunk novel
0: um and this is also but kind of like it's almost like a right wing version in a sense of the archaic revival, whereas, um, you know, but it's kind of the same, you know, region. I mean, coming out of Silicon Valley, because, I mean, that was really uh, Mulberg, you know, where he worked out of. I think he still maybe does. Um, yeah, yeah. And It seems like that was also kind of an area where a lot of the other early uh, figures in the movement had sprung forth from. So, yeah, you kind of had again that sort of interesting contrast of this, you know, city again that's so driven by high technology. In the same token, you have um, essentially this group of nerds advocating a return to, you know, uh, an almost um, was it pre-Westphalian worldview or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the Holy Roman Empire, but without like the empire itself it's just a market you know and i think that you're completely spot on in pointing out the parallels with the archaic revival for like two reasons uh one is that yeah the fact that this is culture that's being produced by silicon valley me which you could just kind of translate as like the the in, in in land world this would be the technology itself producing this culture um so he would pick up on that immediately. In the second, you know, archaic revival has a time paradox kind of coded in the phrase itself, archaic revival, you know, that's, far past, you know, and and more present future, you know, what does it mean to revive the past? It's, you break that down. That's kind of the whole time splicing dynamic of the time spiral, but you get that same thing in the word Neo reaction, like Neo is the new it's the emergent future and reaction is the past. So in, in a weird way, you can see the, continuity you know even though the van the vantage point is radically changed you could see where a lot of the continuities with the ccr use concerns are still there and another one that i think is important is this whole idea that the um the the, the reactionaries they had this whole concept that they called the cathedral and the cathedral is kind of like this media state academy etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, kind of machine that represses, you know, both returns to tradition and, you know, innovation, you know, like a a libertarian leaning neo-reactionary would be like, oh well, the market's overregulated by the cathedral. It's it's tearing it down. And you know, if you're kind of like an ethno-nationalist neo-reactionary, you know, you're going to complain that the cathedral's, you know, They're forcing you to
0: it's almost like kind of a stand-in for the Atlanteans or something in the CCRU Yes, mythos.
1: exactly. Um, it, it's land in his, some of his blog writings directly ties the cathedral to uh, the human security system. And he's also directly, he's called it the AOE. So like he's still thinking in terms of the CCRU mythos. So that's another point. Of continuity is kind of like these older human security systems or the Atlanteans. It's now the neo reactionary cathedral, and I guess the the final important part is that for land, like if you really dive into like well neo reactionaries are pretty dead at this point. It doesn't exist as a movement. I don't know if it ever actually existed beyond like some internet nerds, but they never agree. They they all use the 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 uh, cathedral framework and they all used this kind of notion of patchwork but beyond that they didn't agree on anything like the ethno-nationalists hated you know the techno-commercialists and some of them were like religious nuts and other ones wanted kings and so what land was interested in was that it was a politics that would instantly be at war kind of with itself um, it would be fractious. There could be no unity in a neoreactionary world if it was to come to creation. And so that would automatically kind of fuel kind of the competitiveness that, you know, a hyper capitalist market would need. And if you think that capitalism is your A.I you know, or building your AI, you're going to want capitalism to be most extreme as possible. So you're going to want the politics to reflect that. So I think those are the various reasons that really kind of drew him to, you know, the very awful group of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a fascinating transformation to be sure
1: yeah it's really it's it's very kind of depressing like if you look <laughs> at him on twitter like i think it's early writings so just like so fascinating yeah even some I mean, of his
0: you know i mean say what you want about land but i mean he is a brilliant man i mean he truly is and it is yeah it's tragic that i mean uh, this is where he's uh chosen to put his uh yeah erudition towards <laughs>
1: Exactly. Even if you dig into like a lot of his contemporary writings, you'll still find stuff that's like utterly fascinating and like really provocative, but you just have to like, you know, dig through like Fox News tier, like conservative nonsense to like find the diamonds scattered throughout.
0: All right. So, as a bonus, can you explain the CCRU obsession within the Mouth of Madness? It's one of my all-time favorite movies, but I'm under the impression that the CCRU uh, CCRU took fan worship uh, to new levels uh, over this film.
1: Yeah, it's one of my favorite films too. So I was I was really excited to like find that they made uh, use of it. Uh, the the first way, you know, obviously is that it's you know, it's it's theory fiction. And it, this is made clear like in the final chapter of Flatline Constructs, Fisher's PhD thesis, where he talks about how the in the mouth of madness uh, should be watched alongside the reading of Deleuze and Guattari's two books and t- treat them as like a common unit, you know, keep them together to like understand the, you know, strange new world that is emerging. And the reason for this is that In the Mouth of Madness kind of captures all the different elements that they were interested in, somehow puts them all in one place. Like, you know, in the first place, it's, it's Lovecraftian to its core. It's... Uh, uh, apocalyptic story about yeah, I mean the... it really
0: is probably the greatest Lovecraft adaptation even though I mean yeah I, I would Lovecraft, but...
1: I've had a hard time trying to think of any others like like reanimator's is fun but it's like kind of a different you know take on it
0: uh, um, the only other i mean maybe um the other one that Stuart gordon did dogan i think it was um oh was i don't
1: th- i haven't seen that is that, is that, that was, good
0: yeah yeah that was a pretty uh, solid lovecraft adaptation but yeah i mean a lot of the other ones like the color what is it the color out of space and
1: i wasn't too crazy about it honestly yeah i mean it was
0: all right but i mean yeah most of the yeah a lot of the other attempts to do lovecraft just yeah. as the mark yeah the
1: the soundtrack to color out of space was much more like much superior to the film i thought uh, but yeah the yeah it's a it's a in the mouth of madness though just utterly fantastic and i think really grap- grasped what like lovecraft was kind of all about um you yeah, know it is about the return of the old ones, like in the, the final sequences, like you see the old ones, re- you know, coming in and where are they coming in from? Well, they're coming from the outside. They're invading uh, the inside. And so that's already kind of like ref- reflective, you know, with uh, the CCR CCRU's kind of like own play between the division of the inside and the outside. And, you know, they're also, you know, they explicitly associated with the outside with, the old ones, um, in the mouth of madness. Like I guess, like I'm trying to really think of. It, it's also all about you know contagion. Like the apocalyptic return of the old ones is catalyzed by a mimetic virus that kind of overtakes the social. Uh, in the vehicle for it is belief. Well, also you know,
0: too, I was thinking it's also multimedia. I mean, it's a yeah through telecommunications
1: exactly it's it it's it's through the novels that it's spread you know like, this is a uh, hyperstition you know it, it's these novels are spreading it's a media system and what's happening you have strange mutations mass outbreaks of psychosis you know breakdown of social bonds society like spins out of control um but i think also like it, it's a commercial aspect as well you know like Sutter Kane's novels are mass market paperbacks, you know, that this is the capitalist market, you know, that's delivering this schizophrenic energy out yeah, into society.
0: Religion, yeah.
1: Yeah, it comes a new religion that makes itself real. So it's hyperstitional. Um, and also like in the final act of the film, like even time itself starts to act in weird ways. Like Sam Deal's character is like hopping around in time. And then finally, like in the final sequences, it just turns straight into like a strange loop, you know, of him yeah, watching, watching himself. himself in
0: a movie. Yeah. 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 Um, mm-hmm. No, nah, I mean, it's, it's really amazing.
1: Yeah. It's, it really like, I don't think you could uh, find something that not just captures Lovecraft, but it really does just somehow, contain like all the elements that they're playing with
0: absolutely well i mean again you know we already did an episode that partially got in, in the mouth of madness but um, for those of you who still haven't watched it yet i would highly recommend it um it's also kind of interesting too that they definitely held john carpenter in high regard um so you got to give them some props for taste uh there is that
1: right it's funny because um in Anti-Oedipus, uh, Deleuze and Guattari sometimes call capitalism the thing. You know, this was written in 1972. So, you know, when the CCRU was on their like John Carpenter kick and the fact that like he, there's the movie The Thing and Deleuze and Watari called Capital The Thing, you know, that, that's another thing that kind of set them off as well
0: well also too because i mean you know he was a uh, carpenter was just so great at working uh journeys, you know i mean obviously with horror i mean to some extent science fiction i mean obviously the, even though he never really implicitly did a western um i suppose maybe vampires would count as that but whatever i, you, I always kind of thought uh, But there was always the strong, there was the strong influence of westerns in a lot of his films um yeah, I mean, he, you know, he wasn't really trying to do high art in any sense at all with his movies. They were firmly rooted, uh, you know, in science fiction and horror and fantasy, the type of genres that were usually looked down upon. Um, But he managed to get a a lot of very uh, elaborate, you know, concepts into these films, a lot of elaborate, maybe not elaborate, but a lot of very interesting political statements. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it does really kind of uh, embody a lot of what what they were about with their whole concepts of theory, fiction and hyperstition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just the fact that it's like, yeah, a pulp vehicle for delivering these concepts. Um, I think that that's kind of a really important thing in their in their work that people overlook you know like uh fisher talked a lot about what he called popular modernism and this was kind of modernism you know that kind of like uh not not high art but it's done more in a uh you know a social setting. It's more populist in a way in the sense that like it appeals to more wider crowds. It's often made by like more normal people. And I think you could probably make a really good case that John Carpenter could be like seen as a popular modernist in the in the Fisher sense of the term.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, as always, it has been a fascinating chat. Uh, Did you have any closing thoughts or anything? Uh, I
1: don't know, man. I think pretty much covered as much as we really could without, you know, turning this into like a 10 hour
0: thing. (laughs) Right, man. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been great though. Always a pleasure having you on, sir. Um,
1: Yeah, this is fun.
0: Yeah, I'll have to have you back again one of these days. Sure. All right, folks. I hope all of you guys have enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Um, As always, thank you so much for listening and good night and good luck.